Welcome, everyone, to New Polities Podcast, Good Cities. So excited to have Nathan and Jacob on for Cars Part 2. Another day, but we're all wearing the same clothes. You figure it out. Uh, we have ended our previous session, which is very restrained. Nathan, you really kept yourself in check. Jacob, well done. I did my best. Sticking to the historical narrative of the takeover of the American city by the car, this hollowing out of the American city by the suburbs, which were enabled by the car, by the military product, which is the highway system, um, which has essentially disintegrated American life into compartments accessible by that all-encompassing compartment, the automobile. Having gone through that history in which automobile use is born out of war and industry, is confirmed in America's great experiment, kind of ends in the Cold War, and ultimately builds up a new police state, as Nathan mentioned, in which all are objects of surveillance and a constant police force seems necessary for the basic maintenance of the peace we now arrive at today. It's helpful, I think, to now look back on the car, not so much as a historical artifact, but simply as a reality that we deal with. What does it do? What is it like? And I have an Illich, and I swear I've read other books, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I have an Illich I find to be one of the most provocative thinkers on this topic and well worth considering, even though we might quibble on a few of his points. You'd be in good company with uh, a bunch of the new urbanists. They love Illich and his talk on cars. Well, so. no one's invited me to their parties, so. Oh. Okay. Oh, gosh. Coffee going everywhere here. All right. The... Reason Illich, I think, is very important is not only does he consider the car as such, but he really early on has an intuition that this thing is counterproductive. He begins with a provocative thesis in like '73 or something that cars make you slow, which was not evident in 1973. Um, so, all of this being said, I want to start with. Go ahead, Nathan. I just had a thought. It's <laughs> it's self-evident to anyone with children that cars make you slow. Like trying trying to fit multiple children into their car seats to yeah. go anywhere is just such an ordeal. Mm-hmm. It, it was just funny. Like, yeah, it, it might not be self-evident to the person who can just get in the car and drive away, but yes. when you're struggling with a screaming two-year-old and like, get in yes. your car seat, yes, so we can go. Totally, it takes forever. I, I had this. That's, um, that's all I was gonna say. <laughs> I, I, I gave my gave some friends a ride in a convertible of mine, and uh, <laughs> that that makes it sound like I have more what? cars. I a have one car. Casual. It's a convertible, convertible drop. <laughs> this will come up more within the podcast. Um, but like, I'm like, let's go. Want to take your kids in the ride? We had to take at least like 10 minutes beforehand of getting the car seats yeah. in the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, as someone who doesn't have kids right now, yeah, this is something I'm learning. Yeah. So, so all that to say. Okay. So we're going to start in. Cars in, do make you slow. So yes. In line yes. I Well, I haven't got this great book, Energy and Equity, but I don't, I don't want to start there yet. I want to actually start with um, a work called Shadow Work and to give a, um, a, more economic um, discussion, not of the car, but of how luxuries or or um, luxury items sort of become a feature in our own enslavement. And by enslavement, I simply mean like the obvious, which is that we are under much more necessity within our highly complex industrial societies than um, the societies that preceded them. Um, we have to be more places and do more things according to um, our needs for money. 
than previous communities would have to. Okay, so I don't mean to be like edgy with the use of the term. But this is going to be an odd place to start because he's really talking about women by a redefinition of women that happens in modernity. And it's very bleak, but I think it really sheds a lot of light on the car. Okay, so I'll read what he says. This is in the work Shadow Work. So he says that there is a world of subsistence in which things are basically worked for the sake of creating use values, which is a fancy term that means that basically you weren't that concerned with making money. Within this world, call it Christendom if you will, um, a new introduction of a new way of living, namely wage labor, which had previously been considered a sign of poverty. And Illich quotes a really great uh, <laughs> great story from medieval Florence where uh, a gentleman dies, and but he leaves all of his money to the poor. And so we have the records of what they did. They locked all of the poor into the churches and then let them out one by one in Florence and gave them their split of his pie. And what was really nice is this showed us, okay, who they thought poor the poor people were. And it had people you might expect, cripples, beggars. These were kind of formal categories within Christendom. And it also had heads of households who have to work for a wage. Can you imagine? This is a sign of poverty. So Illich's question here is, well, how did we get from point A? Damn. To point B, where it's like <laughs> the only conceivable way of life, um, head of household or not, is to work for a wage. Well, um, he says that one of the key mechanisms here was actually a kind of redefinition of women into a luxury piece of property owned by men. Now, that might not seem immediately obvious what's happening here, but I'll try to give my best my best description. Basically, um, the kind of movement of people out of the cities into factory work, the movement to a sort of, uh, you know, the enclosure of the commons, the end of the game uh, or the um, uh, making illegal uh, things like hunting and fishing, these, these sort of experiments in Europe that were the creation of what we now call the proletariat. Um, these were pretty much fought by people. Like they didn't like it. There was a lot of rioting. I mean, this is something you talk about like the movement of people from the country to the cities as if it sort of just happened. Mm. But what actually happened is pretty much at every instance, um, people were very unruly and unwilling to submit to this regime, although obviously they had to in some ways. And one of the examples he uses that I think is is phenomenal is the, the poor laws, which would basically basically criminalized vagrancy. So if you were not working for a wage, this wasn't simply what had previously been a sign of health and wealth. Um, now it was actually illegal if you didn't have some place to work. Mm. And so um, you would be moved to a poor house in England. Well, this was resisted. Uh, and often when people were arrested for essentially not working, they were rescued by mobs of people. Um, and this is common. This is sort of the description of early, what we might call industrial capitalism, but it hadn't really clarified itself. But then you get this sudden break where everyone seems to be kind of submitting to this and moving on with history. It's no longer a fight. It's no longer a riot. What happens? This is Evan's question. And he looks at the way in which women no longer had the kind of prerequisites by which they had a domain of their own authority. So when you're working a wage, when you no longer have access to common land, um, the female existence no longer had a specific domain of authority and of labor in which you are taking part in basically agricultural work, raising mm -hmm. crops or something like that. Now 
you had shifted to a um, society in which the man earns a wage and then the woman <clears throat> spends the money, you know. Mm-hmm. And what Illich argues is that there was a sort of philosophical and cultural redefinition of of woman as basically being a uh, luxury item, something useless, something non-productive, something that the man had to go work for a wage in order to support. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, the man has a new need. He previously maybe needed a wage because of the force of enclosure and such. But now what's being insinuating insinuated is that what is natural to his life as a man is to make more money uh, precisely to maintain someone who has suddenly become unproductive. You might call this the infantilization of, of women. Like suddenly they don't have work, and so suddenly the amount of need that a man has to earn a wage basically doubles. Mm-hmm. And precisely because it's linked to his own honor, right, like providing for your wife, um, it became a way to quell a resistance to this new form of living. Women were basically weaponized against men, as it were. This is Ivan's point. Okay, so are we a long way from cars? No, I don't think so, but wait till you see it. Um, So he says that simultaneously, man, as head of a family increasingly dependent on his wages, was urged to perceive himself burdened with all society's legitimate work and under constant extortion from an unproductive woman. Wow. Man and woman, both effectively estranged from subsistence activities, became the motive for the other's exploitation, for the profit of the employer, and the investments of capital goods. Okay. Nathan, you mentioned at the end of the last podcast the price of the car, Mm -hmm. that it's expensive. And from the very beginning in its expansion into agriculture, you can see what's happening here. That when you get people to get into debt, to have a greater need than otherwise they had, you now essentially loosen them for more labor. Like they are now available to more for more labor. They are available to, and they have new needs that they now need to meet. And the way we choose to meet them is through labor. The car, I think, has this primary problem where it becomes the sort of unproductive piece of property that we must have and actually cements both in terms of our geographical distance from places but also in terms of our actual work it cements us as needing to work in a certain way and to accrue a certain wage in order to be able to have access as it were to normal life so in this way i see a a very similar thing happening where what happens is men are sort of saddled with a new need, Mm -hmm. but the new need becomes the very way that they access normal life. It's like to get to work, you now need an automobile. And so in in some ways you can see a continuity of a movement that began much longer, which is that, uh, or or, or previously, um, which is that what begins as sort of consumer goods, if we can convince people that they are needed actually means that those people are more subservient and have to work harder or more or in different conditions precisely in order to be able to afford a world that has been become more costly. Mm-hmm. 
So it's the making of the world as a more costly commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like this is sort of the fundamental part in the uh, what you might call like a war on subsistence that the car plays. Okay, that's my intro. I think it's very important because it's also the case that with the use of the car, you cement the idea that work and worship and commerce are all separate from life and family raising. And so you more effectively give credence to the idea of the woman and the family and the home as a sort of unproductive motivator mm-hmm. of increased wage labor. And it's and we see this, I mean, all over. It's almost a crisis at this point of people who feel like they, they cannot get married because mm-hmm. they cannot afford it. They can't afford the lifestyle of raising a family because there are so many accumulated and somewhat artificial needs that totally. come with that. It used to be you start a family to help work the farm and 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 create a good in and of itself, but now it's 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 a luxury. Yeah, absolutely, a luxury item. And we see this increasingly because marriages are increasingly only... Uh, only, the, only the wealthy get married. Yeah. Increasingly, yeah. it's a middle-class um, sort of I guess, phenomenon. Thankfully as well, not only are people realizing how prohibitively, prohibitively expensive it is, but how increasingly undesirable it is. Not only do young people not want to get married because of how expensive, but you know the only affordable, or not even affordable, but available housing um, can be that single family home on the outskirts of the city, mm. totally divorcing yourself from some of the social ties you've built up often within the, the heart, community. Yeah. Within the community. And I, and I think if there's ever been, and, and I'm speaking anecdotally, like if there's ever been a cry of women particularly who feel trapped within domestic life, but without even the language to describe why it's a trap and why it's not fulfilling. I actually think it's worse now than it was in the sort of, you know, um, kind of heyday of, of early feminism. Why? Well, because we've essentially completed a world in which um, the home through the expansion of the automobile has really been moved from any connection with both community on the one hand and work on the other. And those two things are not options. They are perfections of the powers of the human person, Mm -hmm. right? And so women through the uh, influence of the automobile essentially are trying to normalize a deeply abnormal existence where largely it's still the case that men go to work and women raise children within these marriages mm-hmm. um, and those those deeper needs for community and for labor go um, unmet I find mm-hmm. okay that's a little anecdotal but the, the point is that the car has not been without its effects on our spiritual life on the relations mm-hmm. of man and woman and in its very expense when access to the normal world comes at the cost of a high capital-intensive commodity that burns gasoline, then human life itself, normal life, faces a economic barrier, or you might even say a sort of test of how much money you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is Illich's point in his book, Energy and Equity, where he sees this expansion of a technology beyond its sort of useful life um, as a way of concretizing a uh, 
artificial, uh, what's the word, difficulty. Okay, now you got to pay to play. And what are you playing? You know, normal life, getting groceries and work and such. So what does he say? Well, in energy and equity, he argues that the car is counterproductive. So it's counterproductive first because everything is moved further and further apart in mm-hmm. accordance with the availability of cheap land mm-hmm. on the one hand and <clears throat> of the ability of the car to reach it. So it's counterproductive in the sense that you know if the car is there to move you from point A to point B faster, then counter to that, to its own sort of teleological end, is the spreading out of every place from every other. And we really are at a point where I think you can recognize this very obviously. Okay, so for instance, there are no, typically there are no bars in walking distance of American living housing developments. Mm -hmm. Okay, prior to that, you were tops 10 to 15 minutes away from an establishment where you could get a drink. Okay, so now it's the case that you drive, I would say about 10 to 15 minutes to an establishment to get a drink. Mm -hmm. Okay, so beyond the question of drinking and driving, which will come up later, There's the obvious fact that we are spending the same amount of time simply in the commute that we would walking. So what's the difference? Well, is it just the same? No, because on the one hand, you are spending a lot of money to maintain your capacity to get to the bar. Mm -hmm. So I think think everyone can recognize this. Like it's counterproductive in this sense. Well, another, I think you've brought this up before, but um, similar example with the grocery store. If, if you walk 15, 20 minutes to a grocery store, yeah, you might be a little tired. Your feet might hurt. You drive now to a grocery store that has a giant parking lot. And just to put some numbers on it, I've done <laughs> this calculation before. For for a parking lot, to build a parking lot, it requires around 300 square feet of pavement mm. for every parking space. Whoa. And so you... Really? You, yeah. Parking, yeah, yeah. Parking By spaces the time, are about 18... 18 feet by often nine feet is right. a typical average. So nine by 18 plus the drive aisle right. that's required. It's about 300 square oh, feet for each mm-hmm. parking yeah, spot. And of course, right. cars are cars have gotten progressively bigger. And so the parking spaces are getting bigger and bigger. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Um, but by the time you find a parking spot, walk through the parking lot, get to the back of the store where the milk is, yeah. get back to the cash register and back to your car, that's a if you measure it out, it's a pretty solid long trip. I think we've mentioned this. I think yeah, we I did mention this. this. The um, I had one of those. Um, I had one of those rollers. You know, that that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I just went into Walmart, an available parking lot, and I walked more than the city block that it would have taken to walk from a parking lot downtown <laughs> into like a theoretical downtown and center where 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 speak, a grocery store should be. And speaking right, yeah. of the city block, you look in a lot of uh, modern WalMarts and you'll see right when you walk in by the um, carts, there's like this big map at the top that says your, you know, Steubenville Walmart and you see different colors uh, boxes of toys, groceries, clothing and you start to realize, "Oh no. This looks like a Mixed-use walkable downtown that's illegal to build in most American cities. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Jacob is uh, referring to blithely, I think. I think y- y- you trust that people are going to be hip to your um, hip to your urbanist stuff. Perhaps. But, you know, Perhaps uh, we found that the listeners of New Polity are largely dull and need a lot of like walking through the bases. <laughs> oh, <sorry>. oh. <laughs> um, anyway, keep going. We got off track. Well, there's this... The car is a technology that enables... Um, centralization of power and capital. And, and one of the ways it does this is it allows you to take 
cheap land that otherwise wouldn't have a lot of value. Like, why would you build outside of your city? You wouldn't do it. But now, okay, everyone can drive anywhere. You can get cheaper land outside of the city. But this, almost inevitably, because it's from the ground up, is going to put that property in the hands of single, maybe two, three owners, um, as opposed to a sort of city that grows over mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. which is going to end up distributing that power and property with you know hundreds of owners, even within mm-hmm. a single, in a single maybe one or two blocks. Um, and so, what you have in a in a Walmart, even in a Kroger, any kind of big box store, a strip mall, is effectively something that looks like diverse ownership because you have, as Jacob mentioned, you know, an automotive section, a toy section, a grocery section, and you're able to go through these sections. And even in, sometimes I think a little more malevolent in recent grocery design where they actually make sections look like they are owned by different companies. So corporate brands will make internal brands to items that they sell. Mm, yeah. So like uh, Kroger has a cheese shop, like Murray's Cheese or something. Well, there's no such thing. It's just Kroger. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but it feels convincing because you walk in and there's like a cheese man who's, I mean, he's not made of cheese himself. He's, yeah. he's, he's sort of in control of the cheese and and, and it has the kind of simulacrum of, um, of diverse ownership, which is a good that in its own right people enjoy. Like, yeah. you, what do we really want at the end of the day? To love each other in the kingdom. And so when you see something that appears to you as multiple people operating together, you're like, that looks like love. That looks like what we want out of life. And so I find it very hmm. <laughs> distasteful. Uh, well, the cheese is fine, but but otherwise it's distasteful. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it is only made possible through the through the automobile that you could have this sort of faux diverse ownership. And to the same extent um, that we build these sorts of things for automobiles, we obviously lose our downtowns are you know densely built um multiple owners distributed power distributed ownership centers of civic life these well, become be- scooped out it becomes ugly too if you're building on cheap land you're you're going to build a cheap building yeah mm-hmm. now the other um way that ivan illich says that the car is counterproductive it doesn't just spread out the world which is obviously done but it actually creates um the illusion that you're gaining time because you are now responsible for the maintenance of a machine that largely you don't understand. Um, and you don't necessarily factor into your total speed all the time you actually spend in the car. So this is very obvious. So, so my family, we walk to church, okay? Cause we have really what's a luxury at this point in human history uh, of being uh, next to our church. So we walk to church. Now, when we walk to church, when the transport part of our getting ready for church, so actually after I've beaten the children to submission and wrestled (laughs) them into clothes, they hate, well, that's not true. My daughter loves the dresses. Um, Then we get out the door. Transport starts, and it takes us 10 minutes to walk to church. Now, the 10-minute drive is not quite the same, as you've mentioned, because you have to factor in the fact that your car was in the shop for a while, and the money you spent was produced through your labor, and it went into paying, not just for your oil change before that, but to the time that the car was in the shop and its use. So you have the time of your labor and the actual time of the car in the shop, and then when your car gets there, and I'm not factoring in stopping for gas or anything like that, 
Um, you also have to get into the car. You have to buckle everyone into the car. You have to get out. You have to wait at lights and traffic. Um, and then you have to find your parking spot. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all of this time, your commute might be 10 minutes, but your total time spent operating the car is probably half an hour by now. And Ivan Illich does some calculations on this. And I think it's important to say that I have no idea if this is correct. Because, (laughs) number one, he was writing at a time using statistics that aren't probably relevant today or are not exact. But I want to point to the fact that it almost doesn't matter because we all can assent to the basic truth Mm -hmm. that cars take so much time maintaining and getting into and out of and, navi- and navigating that there's a loss even as there's a gain. I think we can all assent to that and mm-hmm. then say, okay, well, so what he estimates is that we actually drive at about 25 miles per hour top speed. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Chuck Marone does this too in Strong Towns. He, he talks about dri- the difference between driving through a city. What happens in cities today is that you have the core downtown, which is these days is very small, and that might have a speed limit of 25 miles an hour, but then you have this vast distributed network of strodes and strip malls mm-hmm. and all of these shops and, and, and everything that is so distributed, but it's built along infrastructure that looks like it's supposed to may, be made to go fast, yeah. and so you have a speed limit of 35, 40 miles an hour, mm-hmm. and you have a lot of traffic lights along the way, yes. and then maybe by the time you're, you're, you're 20 miles on the edge of town, maybe then you'll get to a real clear stretch of road that mm-hmm. takes you from one town to the next, and that's where you can drive 60, 70 miles an hour and actually take advantage of that yes. speed that the car provides. So he actually did the same calculation and said, if you're going to drive from the center of one downtown to the center of the next downtown through all of these various districts with all of these traffic lights and with all this 25, 35, whatever miles per hour, it'll take you longer than if you just had two dense downtowns. Mm-hmm. You drive 25 miles per hour through the downtown yes. and then right. 60 miles an hour to the next dense yes. downtown. Yes. And it, it's... It's a shorter amount of time that it takes. Absolutely. And this goes back to our kind of historical analysis. There was a point, especially with the development of the American highway system, and Chuck mentions this, that things could have gone otherwise. And the highway system could have been utilized as a way of linking existing cities mm-hmm. um, so that that on a larger scale, that experience it could have been happened. the same. Okay, yeah. you're going to go from... It's this, almost like a train. I mean, you could have used right. a car in the same way that a train. You go from one train station to the next. Exactly. And you get off the train <clears throat> station, and once you're off the train yeah. station, you walk exactly. everywhere. Yeah. But instead, we... Went through the cities. We just... We, yeah, we, we broke apart the cities into their various components and said, you're going to drive from here to there to there to there to there at 35 miles an hour mm-hmm. with a lot of traffic lights. Yes. And you'll feel like you're going faster and you'll be air conditioned, I suppose, but yes. it, it doesn't really save you mm-hmm. time. Right. So I would say that this leads to the first sort of spiritual effect of a automobile world. Um, and that is unicry or impotence. Now, what I mean is very simple. The car, as a counterproductive mechanism, when you get into it, the results versus its capacity are so at odds that the experience is basically one of being demoralized every day. <laughs> now, there's many ways to experience this fundamental impotence of the, of mm-hmm. the driver. One way is to 
get next to someone at a red light mm. who has a nice car and get a little bit envious and try to see if you can go a little bit faster than them and then end up at the next red light having made a lot of noise waiting next to the same person. <laughs> Only now you're a little awkward because in your need for speed, you both uh, displayed the potential <laughs> of the vehicle which in terms of its actual capacities in the world is cut short. I think it's very awkward when you realize you're both going to Walmart. Oh, and then you get out. Yeah. Yep. And then you say, what should we do? Race I should have the- beat you here. <laughs> yeah. It's especially fun to do that on a bike. I have to say, well, the if bike is the next one I was going to, if use. you're going through a downtown and I, I'll be riding my bike through town and I'll come up to a red light with somebody and just sit there. And I don't even know if they notice me, but the light turns green and, yeah, I'm hey, not off a bike. They go. I'm not a bike. I'm I'm gonna go faster than you, and I pedal along, yes, just kind of yes. at my normal speed. And you get to the next, and we light. show up at the next light at the same time. Just like, hey man, it's the tortoise and the hare. Is what it is. <laughs> what are you doing? Yes. So there's that that experience of impotence. Um, the other one is, um, the car has been sold, as understandably, as a extension of human power. Okay, so you know that we love to go fast. I mean, look at a child. A child does not need to run everywhere. They just do mm-hmm. because they have it as a power and they're innocent enough not to um, know that there's anything wrong with simply using a power to its extent. In fact, a lot of parenthood seems to be revolve around just saying like, hey, ease up a little bit. <laughs> uh, and, so, and so we know that we love to go fast and it's a beautiful thing. Um, and so cars are sold as an extension and a fulfillment of those desires. You mm. want to be strong, this will make you strong. You want to go fast, it'll make you fast. You want to be free, this will make you free. Um, but what happens is um, we we actually, well, as, as we've said, we, we, you, actually, you actually end up very slow. I mean, you think about those advertisements for cars where at the bottom it has the text that says uh, professional, uh, professional you know, driver, stunt driver, do, do not, not attempt. attempt. And it's very a very fascinating form of false consciousness here, which is like the thing that we are showing you to get you to buy this car, you are not allowed to do. You would think, if this were a reasonable world, that one reading that text would say, well, then I'm not going to buy that car. But obviously it works because there's advertisements, right? It gives you the potential to do it. I could. Yeah, and in this I way could. it fits, I think, right with kind of deeper conceptions of power in um in America and in, in Western liberalism. So I won't go too briefly on this. If you really want to get into the weeds with it, uh, read D.C. Schindler's The Politics of the Real from New Polity Press. But there's basically a reconception of power that happens in modernity where it's not conceived of as prior to act. Okay, I'm, let me let me simplify. <laughs> so, so, Okay, I can't simplify. Uh, <laughs> so prior to sort of at the deep roots of, of liberalism, which is the sort of philosophy that basically governs our most of our inventions and technologies and ways of living today, there is a conception of God where God is not considered in his act, that is to say, who he has revealed himself to be, which we would say is the God of Jesus Christ. But for various reasons, which we shall not go into, uh, is conceived of as a sort of infinite reserve of power that may reveal itself, that may act in such and such a way, in one way or another. Now, obviously, this makes a lot of room for diversity and pluralism within America. So the idea being like, well, maybe God 
properly revealed himself in the Presbyterian mode. Maybe he revealed himself, you know, according to Judaism only, maybe Catholicism. The point is who God really is, is this infinite reserve of power that could have done it any, mm. any one way. And so this is sometimes what people refer to as nature's God. Okay. Now you can see how in the experience of divinity that you get behind the wheel, you actually have a sort of divinity that's very proper to our society, mm. which is that you aren't judging your actual life. Like somehow this <laughs> mist sets in when we, when we love the drive, the car, and we're not judging how we're spending our time. We're not judging our posture, for instance. Like, are we moving fast? Sort of. On the other hand, we're sitting, and mm. because we drive so much, we're obese. So part of the need for speed that isn't met is the need to actually be sell, uh, fast from within, as it were. Um, but the predominant use of the car makes us very unhealthy. The... The experience of power there does not meet with our actual life. Like, do I have lots of time? No, I'm in traffic. <laughs> Am I healthy and strong? No, I'm getting fat. Am I going fast? No, actually, I'm driving very slow through a downtown. I just get brief allowances to be fast. Am I free? No, I'm actually the most governed body in the, exi in the history of the world when I'm on the road. Like the number of laws and surveillance, you know, uh, surveillances that I'm, that I'm subjected to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is immense. Okay, so all of the actual reality um, is impotent, mm -hmm. but the reserve of power is present. But I could. <clears throat> but it's, you could, <laughs> damn it. It's fascinating. <laughs> and I think that this is really, just to, to finish up this thought mm -hmm. here, I think that this, this helps to explain the fittingness of the automobile for the society, right? Because... Uh, no technology is without its society. They, they, these things operate uh, uh, kind of in tandem, right? Because mm -hmm. you have to have production and consumption. You have to have the proposal, which is kind of already motivated by the fact that people will probably accept it in mm -hmm. order to come into being. Okay, it's a complex social field. But if it's the case that at, at the very theological basis of modernity, there's a reconception of God, and it's also the case that like all of our major forms of life. I mean, we are the image of God. When we go about doing things, mm -hmm. we do it like to show something about God. It also just makes a basic sense that the car would really only take off in a society where real power was conceived not in terms of act, but in terms of itself, power mm -hmm. for its own sake. Mm -hmm. And this is what I, what I think mm -hmm. is so hilarious about the uh, sort of uh, the, the impotence, right? Like the yeah. cars are now huge. They don't they don't get smaller and smaller according to the reality, which is like, mm -hmm. hey, we're using a lot of space here. We should probably get, shrink down a little. They get bigger and bigger according to the potentiality that never gets enacted. Mm -hmm. It's like now I have a huge car that has lots more, takes lots more gasoline. I am less and less able to maintain it and fix it. I am more and more a slave to it. It costs more and more. And in each instance, our actual power decreases for a potential mm -hmm. power that we are banned by law from enacting. <laughs> yeah. It's like you got to pick one. Either yeah. we go the Mad Max route. This seems like it would be just. Make the cars and use the cars and see what kind of society flows from that. Or we go um, the route of the church, I think, but <laughs> which is let's get off the car thing. Okay, But instead, we're like, we're going to make the Mad Max machines 
and build up the police state so that you never ever use them. Yeah. The mm. result, the American driver. Okay, this, there. This sounds, so, sorry, this, <laughs> go ahead. Oh, I don't know. This is maybe is a far fetch, but this sounds so, so much almost like nu- nuclear weaponry. In terms oh yeah, of, yeah. Well, in terms of um, like we're gonna make it as powerful as humanly possible, but because we all have these tools, we're never gonna use them against one another. This is great sort of myth within uh, militaries where we're the safest we've been um, because we have these nuclear weapons, right? And we know how much they can hurt. And so you, they'll show these graphs of how you know military deaths have decreased. But the problem with that is that they've decreased only until they don't. You know? and, and there's also a certain psychological damage that's done by that. Like, yes, the real number of deaths has and, and real number of wars has maybe decreased, but we're all living under this constant anxiety of, well, I know there's that thing out there that could end the world in an instant. <clears throat> cars, and we all just have to, to live with like that. Cars, are, cars are safe only until they're not. Like, right, you're walking around, you feel safe, and the reason they're getting bigger and bigger is because they feel safer and safer and safer. Yes. I need to be the biggest car on the road, so if I'm in an accident, I'm going to be safe, my family's going to be safe, but then you get out of the car, and now you're under that same threat of anxiety as you are under a nuclear regime of, well, at any moment I could get hit by one of these behemoths, yes. mm-hmm. and I will be a red splatter on the pavement. And, and to that point, like the amount of um, anxiety that comes um, after the fact of getting hit by, you know, getting in a car accident where yeah. like you now, if you total your car, that's at least $15,000 you need to have on reserve. Your insurance payments are going to go up if you're at fault. Um, not counting if you killed anybody or damaged anybody. And the um, the moral guilt that has um, on somebody's conscience where, and everyone is, everyone is at every possible moment potentially in the spot. Yes, yes, yes. No, I think that's quite right. I mean, it also, it, it, sorry, the microphone. It also, um, <laughs> for the first time in, in history, provides you with the phenomenon of necessary insurance. So, mm, yes. Mm-hmm. So it's this yeah, weird thing yeah. where it's like you'd think insurance is basically optional because it's like, it's insurance. Right. Yeah. I'm being insured against a risk. And so I'm, I'm, if I'm willing to take the risk, I don't have to get the insurance. No, no, no. If you want the to drive. The risk is so prevalent and so socialized yes. that you really need insurance. Otherwise, you end up with, uh, you know, you the, the misname, the without... tragedy, the commons, yes. essentially. If no one has insurance and then we're all wrecking each other's cars, then yes. who pays for that? So, I, I, I want to, you've talked really at length about the, the spiritual impotency that yes. the cars bring. but. There's also a physical because, as we know, there's no dividing the spirit and the flesh when it comes right. to, well, to your, to your point of speed. In terms of like people recognizing that cars are meant for speed um, within the states, and this is pretty common now across most global um, transportation, you know, authorities. The way that you determine a road, um, we use the acronym LOS within the states, mm-hmm. level of service. And um, this is a great point that Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns, gets into in his second book, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. He did traffic engineering. Is that um, LOS, level of service for a road, is A, you know, like in school, A plus, <laughs> good job. If you can go fast and there's no blockage, right? It's, if no one is using the if road. If no one's using it. <laughs> and it's F if you're backed up. Mm. And what's interesting is that this is imposed upon the urban fabric without uh, any sensitivity to context. And what I mean by that is a, 
you know, a suburban arterial road is graded on the same scale that a dense historic downtown is. And so your, um, you know, your dense downtown is often always going to be F because the roads are narrow and there's pedestrians everywhere that you're having to wow. worry about, right? But it's, you know, maybe B or A on that arterial. Because um, if, to- if you actually measure the number of people getting from place to place in that situation, mm-hmm. it's going to be higher in the downtown where the reason you're going slow is because the pedestrians are crisscrossing in front of you and actually getting where they need to go but while then this you measurement are also, in traffic. This measurement dictates policy decisions, right? So well, we need, actual- we need to be passing it A. Yes. Right. So that we need to increase, we need to increase, even if you're oh, the millions of dollars that can be spent to increase a road's um, width from like 10 feet to 12 feet. Oh my mm-hmm. goodness. I mean, we're having that happen in Steubenville, you mm-hmm. know? And um, to do what exactly? Yeah. So you're saying that the actual code um, tends it, towards the creation of um, over, over-engineered, over-engineered car friendly. A car, more car-friendly world at every instance. Like, yeah. there's no context of like, hey, you are driving in a city. It's like there's one scale, and that's starting and to change. Fail. That's starting to change a little bit. There's a, definitely a growing movement. There was an understanding. There was a document that I think that, the federal DOT put out recently that made, um, really at first in print, made the distinction between a street and a road, which is a. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've actually properly described roads yet on this podcast. No, I don't know if we want to do that very quickly because I think it is useful. Um, this. Uh, Just briefly, streets are for commerce and community. Roads are for getting you from point A to point B. Gotcha. So what would happen before the introduction of the car is you'd have your street, your main street, and that's where everybody lives and works and Mm -hmm. does their thing. And then you'd have the road that takes you to the next town over. I see. What we have now are strodes, which are not very good at being streets because you're driving too fast mm-hmm. to really take advantage of commerce or community. Mm-hmm. But they're not really roads either because they're too congested and there's too many places to stop to really be good at getting from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And so we tried to put these two things together, but it ends up being really bad at both. Right. Um, and, and that's kind of the standard. And so there is a growing recognition of all this, but we're fighting against 70 years of incredible investment in car-first infrastructure. And so it's not just a political problem that we have to fight today. It's a historical problem that we're fighting against mm-hmm. the built environment itself Absolutely. and having to rework what has already been totally. done, which is there's a lot of momentum that needs to get shifted back around. But I, I want to yeah, roll please. back a little bit. We've talked about the spiritual impotency, yes. but there is also a physical impotency yes, that comes with the vehicle. This is a study... It has not been peer-reviewed yet, so take all of this with a grain of salt, but it, it's an interesting paper by Jordan Nickerson at the University of Washington and David Solomon at Boston College called Car Seats as Contraception. Mm-hmm. And th- there is a real desire and a real need. Again, we've talked about you know, you're operating a multi-ton machine at high speeds, and if you get hit and you're not in a, your child is not in a car seat, they might die. Mm-hmm or at least get grievously injured. Mm -hmm. And so there's this real public need to keep our children safe. And so we require better and better safety requirements in our cars, airbags, uh, you know, crumple zones, things like that. But then also we require 
the purchase and installation of a car seat. I mean, they won't even let you leave the hospital right. with yeah. your with your baby unless you have, have a car seat. They also have a like a time or a expiration date, right? <clears throat> yeah, you have to replace them every four or five years, I think. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm just going to read the abstract here. I'm not going to quote the paper at length, but we show that laws mandating the use of child car safety seats significantly reduce birth rates as many cars cannot fit three child seats mm. in the back seat. Women with two children younger than their state's age mandate have a lower annual birth probability of 0.73 percentage points. This effect is limited to third childbirth. So there's a real cutoff. Like yeah. if you are in a sedan, you have room for the driver, the adult passenger, and two child's car seats in the back mm -hmm. and, and no more. It is very, very difficult to fit a third car seat in most cars. Um, households with access to a car and households with male present where both front seats are likely to be occupied. We estimate that these laws prevented 57 children's car crashes fatalities in 2017, which is great. 57 kids were saved because they were in their car seats. But they prevented 8,000 births that year and 145,000 births since 1980. What's the scope of this study? Like in, in what geographic location? Is it just talking about the states? I think the states. Okay. I think right. probably the United States. Okay. Um, I haven't reviewed it in depth sure, sure, but sure. it's a compelling the, argument the, yes, I get and general. something that i think is is immediately self-evident to a lot of people i mean if you are driving a sedan you're a young family you just got married you probably have the same sedan like you've been driving since you were in high school yeah there's no need to buy a new car right but then you start thinking let's have a family let's have a kid let's have another kid and then you stop for a second and you're like wait a minute if we have one more kid, yeah. the entire physical structure of our life is dependent on us driving yes. from point A mm -hmm. to point B. And so if we want another child, we need a new car. And then you go and look yeah. how expensive a new car is and your jaw drops and you're just like, can we afford this? Because right. babies are already expensive, hospital bills and all that kind of stuff. But to add on top of that, uh, car payments that are approaching a thousand dollars a month yeah. if you want a new car and you know still probably several hundred dollars a month for a used car <laughs> plus the maintenance burden of that it, it's it's astounding amazing um, this is obviously an anti-catholic conspiracy <laughs> <laughs> like, like you're pointing out it's not the, the study focuses on car seats but this is this can be extrapolated to just the car itself and its different sizes i mean um we we were talking or before this we're planning the podcast about um you know you can go from a sedan to a minivan there really isn't a station wagons anymore and then you have to go from a minivan to a cav mm -hmm. you know a catholic assault vehicle yeah. those big 12 seaters white vans and i mean if i mean just think about it you know maybe maybe if there was an a a great acceptance of uh you know paul the is uh teaching on contraception by all Catholics in the States, and they just start having a lot more kids. And they all get these cars. Do church parking lots have enough space to be able to fit all of these? And now all the uh, the additional parking requirements that are going to be mandated to have CAVs. And I don't know if they're actually called, but... You see immediately that the church's teaching concerning contraception is not just some moralistic, like disruption of our sexual desire but in fact always implies a world a world that the church views as just and proper mm -hmm. um, and right here what's really just obvious about about this this thought 
is that the world that adherence to the church's teaching implies is not a world of um, the automobile. And and I've said this in different podcasts. I'm not going to repeat it again, but it's been unfortunate that by framing contraception as primarily just a moral issue, a sort of do or do not, right or wrong Mm -hmm. issue, that its radical critique of a technocratic paradigm was left underdeveloped, let's say it like that, within the especially 80s and 90s and early 2000s. Because the obvious question is if it is, or the obvious implication is that if it is proper to human flourishing, that the sexual act is open to life whenever it is performed, then what we have is a world, the structures of which make natural happiness um, seem unhappy, (laughs) or at least unnaturally difficult Mm -hmm. to attain. Um, And, you know, you see this within the recommendations that promoters of contraception give to countries that are slow on the uptake of contraception, most especially in Africa. Um, I've discussed this before with Eric Brandy, um, and anyone can go ahead and look that podcast in detail, but the... (laughs) One of the things that's mentioned to help people use contraception when they're otherwise resistant to it is urbanization. And this comes with the use of the automobile. Like the kind of urbanization they mean really is, you know, there's no other form at mm-hmm. this point. Um, and so the expansion of these machines, it goes right back to what I've and Illich sort of began this. It's you make normal life only accessible through higher amounts of capital. Mm -hmm. And what this does is it loosens people from their embedded local Mm -hmm. communities in which their work and their community belong within a walkable structure. You disembed them from that structure and you free them up to work in corporations. Now, I don't know who has the master plan here, and I'm not saying there's someone out there who intends all this outside of just the, you know, the the thing in front of them, the, the, you know, 10 what my my dad used to call it the like the 10 yard target as opposed to the like 500 yard target but the, the net effect is that we are busy creating a world in which the truth of the faith seems increasingly untenable for n- normal life <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and this i think is what is at stake and this is why i just cannot stand the idea that Catholicism is anything less than a radical social revolution at this point. Mm. Because it never just suggests, hey, we've got a nifty list of moral behaviors you should adopt. It suggests at every point that these behaviors only make sense within a world in which power is distributed, in which property is distributed, in which communities are locally present to each other and Mm. embedded, um, in which power is for the weak, and if we do not have these structures in place, this life becomes a sort of riot against a, a exterior violence. Mm-hmm. And so all of which is to say, I mean, there's something quite anti-Catholic about cars. And if and if you'll indulge me, I want to talk about that a little bit. Please go. Yeah. Unless there's yeah. anything else we want to mention with this, uh, this marvelous At, at this juncture, this no, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Keep, keep going. Yeah. Okay. So who are we? Where are we? 
we are citizens of nation states that have largely been established in the manner they've been established in and through the philosophy of liberalism, which is a very unique philosophy in that it is a break with everything that preceded it. I don't mean that historically. Obviously, there's lots of breaks within history you can describe, but I mean it's self-consciously a redescription of everything that's past as being tyrannical and the beginning of new, modern, constituted states where life within them is considered as a sort of resistance of a dark, um, unenlightened past. And this philosophical description of man and of his world often goes unnoticed because it's just the air we breathe, okay? It, it's like when you start to get outside of liberalism, you just start saying things that don't quite make sense to people because it's just normal life is, is basically been defined through the influence of philosophers and through the influence of theologians and through the influence of people who have accepted the basic tenets of of liberalism and then the way that this spills into culture. I guess we don't need to go into all that, but basically defines man as an individual. So at the very beginning, you are an individual and anything social is a sort of extrinsic reality. Like you may enter into sociality Mm -hmm. as an individual, but you are not as the, uh, as the hip people say, always already social rather I am an individual, I have a certain um, separation from everything else, I have these certain rights granted to me, and if I desire it, if it's in my individual benefit, I make contracts, I make decisions to enter into social agreements, which can always be reduced to their individual parts, right? Now, does this seem bogus? I think so. I mean, look at a family, a child is hardly making a social contract, but liberalism especially thrives when it kind of ignores the familial life as an oddity of preparation and then treats adult life as reality as opposed to looking at life as an integrated whole. It's like, no, nothing actually changes when you're 18. It's like, <laughs> that was an arbitrary decision. Okay. Um, so this description of man is very potent because when it was being developed, it allowed for a certain rejection of the Catholic Church, a rejection of a view of man as being fundamentally social, always bound up in each other. That language itself indicating that there's no such thing as an individual, whether what we, what we have are families that um, we can then individualize people from. So individualization becomes a secondary thing. We can consider someone apart from his family, but not really, right? Like we, we all belong to each other, really. Um, but it goes about enacting a world... Um, as if individualism is true. Now, I'm sure you guys have all heard the distinctions between Locke and Hobbes, but I kind of want to just get to what's common between Locke oh, and totally. Hobbes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I just mean, you know, Hobbes is the, you know, nature is red and tooth and claw, and Locke is the guy who's like, oh, reason can, you know, just determine that we should all be quite nice to each other, etc. Um, but I want to get to very briefly what, what what's sort of common here. If we're all individuals and we're all pre- pursuing it, our individual self-interest. And if this is a fundamental truth at the end of the day, um, then it it leads to this difficulty, especially apparent in American life, where it doesn't seem to be true. So in the family, you really don't appear to be 
individuals who are at all competing for your individual self-interest. You appear to be part of a common life. Um, and you appear to things that things like sharing, for instance, seem quite natural, right? You don't appear to really be an individual who has your own rights because you're born in obedience to your to your parents. So from the very beginning, the sort of philosophy, this description of man, um, isn't really met in reality, and this leads to a certain problem because we want the ideology of liberalism to map well onto the real. And one of the ways you can see this historically, I'm giving you this whole lesson, I'm sorry, is like what the liberals had to do is actually invent new origin stories for man. Mm -hmm. Because the biblical origin story is completely social. Man is made male and female. The first thing we hear about is a marriage um, and a family that exists on earth. So they re-describe these origin stories and and probably the most influential one was, was Rousseau who describes man as basically these individuals, they're roaming about in this primordial forest, and the family is this odd thing that happens very briefly for the sake of reproduction, but he describes the moment the child can stand, he walks away from his mother. And his mother never walked, never, they forget what each other looks like. So there's this brief concession to biological necessity, like I guess you have to nurse, but like for what, two years, and then you're good, right? Um, And so then he establishes as a myth um, the idea that you know man really is individual and then describes civilization as a sort of coming together of all of these discrete individual parts. Okay, the automobile. Now, I think one of the reasons that we can say all of these negative things about the car, but also despair, generally, that anything will really change, is because the car is not just a car. It is not just a mode of transport. It never was just a mode of transport. When it was sold, it was never just sold as a mode of transport. It's freedom on wheels, baby. It's freedom on wheels. And I would say most specifically, it is the realization for the first time of the liberal anthropology. Mm -hmm. It makes liberalism true. So long as you're in a car, the things said about man seem true. And so long as you're not in a car, they seem pretty false. And so it has this, because we all want to belong to our societies. No one wants to feel like their society is, is wrong about you. You, 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 want the, you want the thing to be true. You want to live in the truth. This is probably the most fundamental basic desires for the world inside your head to have, a, you know, to be validated by the thing itself, right? Okay. So what do I mean? Well, you can, you can think about it very basically. Is it the case that we live in competition with each other. No, that's not how families operate. But get on the road, baby. And what you enter into... just cut in front of me, and then he he took my parking space. Can you overtake me? Yes. Right away, and everyone knows this, you have an experience of every other person within the car world as having their own interest and being those interests being inimical to yours. Not only inimical, but it's even a presumption of... I'm sure you guys went to driver's ed... Uh, that you are to take the stance of what what's it called? Defensive mm-hmm. driving. It's now, the drive of all against all. Yeah, the drive of all against all. That's great. Uh, <laughs> why? Well, because the presumption on the road is one of fear. It's not something I really men- mentioned in my big, long description of liberalism, but it obviously follows from um, the description of man as being an individual, self-interested individual, that you, there's a zero-sum game for resources, right? what Ivan Illich will later call the presumption of scarcity. So any p- 
person taking up a parking lot, a spot, is taking up a possible parking spot for me. And because of the car, because of its nature as a piece of private property that's big, um, it's not the case that you can quite share anything mm-hmm. on the road, right? You cannot share a space the way that within the family, prior to getting into the car, you share common spaces, you give and you take. Uh, in the in the car, this is, this is not the case. Now, there's things you can do to humanize the experience, obviously, but okay. It's also the case that it's deadly. The road is deadly. And this, I think, is another fulfillment, actually, of liberalism. It makes what liberalism describes uh, mankind as. It makes it true, very briefly, while you're on the road. Um, Because, well, ultimately, because that competition for resources is total, right? So man himself, his life is on the line with other men. And so you can see a sort of realization of the Hobbesian idea that um, in the beginning it's the war of all against all, and it really is war. The other big idea that happens with liberalism is that, well, if individuals are self-interested and if society only comes out as a result of the contracts that these individuals make, then order proceeds from above, as it were. It's the thing that individuals submit to in order to get what they want. Mm-hmm. I won't go into this too much, but read anything Andrew Jones has written um, for New Polity, and it'll give you a good thick description of this of this anthropology. For now, all I want to say is that in life prior to the car, law, order, it seems to come from below to a great extent um, through just figuring out what works. So, you know, how do we talk to each other? Well, we mm-hmm. talk to each other on the basis of seeing people's reactions and sort of changing what we're doing in accordance with them. Yeah, like it's no, a, the, the importance of sight yeah. is hard to overstate um, because when you are in a world without cars, it becomes immediately apparent that somebody walking down the sidewalk and shouting loudly at the person <laughs> in front of them to get out of the way yes. is immediately labeled as antisocial. Yes, right. <laughs> this, is, this is bad behavior and you need to stop and your parents should have raised you better. Right. But the moment you get into a car and you're sitting in traffic, everybody lays on the horn and no one really thinks any worse of you as a person for doing it in most right. cases. I like to, to say that um, the moment you get behind the wheel of a car, your any latent psychopathy in a person <laughs> is, is immediately revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not that the car... It's not that the car makes you worse. It reveals what is worst about you because you have cocooned yourself in a very real physical way from the rest of the world. Yeah. And, and it's especially apparent when, you know, if you've, if you've ever had an interaction with a car that has like heavily tinted windows and you can't even see the person mm-hmm. driving. Mm-hmm. It's funny that, you know, public safety departments love to tell pedestrians, make sure you make eye contact with the driver before crossing the street. Well, I can't make eye contact yeah, with the yeah. driver behind this gigantic truck that's six feet high yeah. and has a tinted windshield. But thank you for the advice, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, so that anonymization yes. and the privatization has a real impact on the way we interact with one another totally. that Same. then opens the door for that liberal war of all against all. Something that I think... Absolutely. Because we don't feel bad about it anymore. Something I think you haven't mentioned 
which might be a slight tangent, but in terms of what actually enables the sort of regime of the car that everyone can have it is um, cheap oil. And what we've had to do and how we've had to restructure countries to mm-hmm. provide that. I This will come up later in, as we talk about um, the church and the land or the, the city and the land. I just came from um, taking pilgrimage in Combermere, Canada um, at Madonna House. I bring that up to say I had to pay Canadian gas prices, which um, is very expensive. It's more expensive in the UK. But... Um, like comparing Canadian gas prices to American gas prices, we have subsidized and have made it a priority to get cheap oil so as to enable this life. Yeah. And the, frankly, military might um, of both business and really the military industrial complex, which we've had so we could secure this oil um, so that we could enable this, it, um, I think it validates liberalism as well. Yeah, yeah, like it's in its global spread. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and going back to the car as as an idea of freedom, it gets sold, especially in in more kind of conservative circles. The you know the government is trying to take my car away. The government is trying to make me less free. They're trying to put me in an EV. Yeah, it's that was a terrible it's accent. this. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm defensive. I apologize. <clears throat> the idea that somehow the car is actually giving you the freedom that it promises while failing to consider that it is dependent on cheap oil that is provided by the very military state that, could, that can also be turned against you. Totally. It's provided by cheap roads, which are provided by the very government bureaucracy that could also theoretically put you in a high-rise apartment yeah. is what they all seem to be scared of. Yeah. Um, failing to realize that the, the the very infrastructure that the car so necessarily depends on yes. is the same imperial infrastructure that could easily have been turned against us 10 years. Like, there's no reason the government would wait well, and this to, just, to have that mm-hmm. takeover for EVs. Like, why why even go through that step when you could just turn off the oil sure. and now everybody's stuck at home? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes, and I, I think that this just goes to show the deep contradiction of libertarianism, right? You're, you're mm-hmm. speaking at it simply in a certain mode of its expression. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the maintenance of individuals with rights who operate not through common forms of, of peacekeeping, but through the assertion of those rights against other individuals necessitates, and in fact, historically has necessitated the largest state apparatuses in the history of the world, juridical, policing, everything. Uh, and the car is sort of like the juridical sort of, it amasses the juridical power unto itself um, and the police power, as you mentioned. And I think that so, so I'm just simply saying, like, I think this is always the contradiction that like, okay, I want to view myself just as an individual with rights that no one can take away from me. All right. Who's going to, ah, now someone's taking away my rights. Who do I go for? And it's like, well, you're going to need a cop. And it's like, okay. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? So like it, yeah. the, the state and the libertarian ideology belong to each other. The, 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 yeah. Now the other things that I think are worth noting is the this idea that power descends from above becomes realized on the road. 
And I think this is one of the experiences. I have a friend who has he's, um, he has schizophrenia and he, he, he suffers a lot of just ambiguity in his life about his own existence. And he's always told me though, he doesn't have a car, but I let him borrow it sometimes. He's always told me I feel peaceful in driving. And I think this is so true. Like I've never seen him so calm, like the voices stop. And I suggested to him and he kind of agreed that, well, the world's kind of simple when you're in a car, right? Like there's instructions, there's signs. The signs mean what they say. Like it's not ambiguous. Um, and he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, there's something to this for everyone, right? We don't have to be entirely schizophrenic to, to see this. We just have to share in the basic social schizophrenia of modernity. Um, and when you're on the road, the world makes sense because order is enforced by the threat of fine and violence, really, mm-hmm. which is administered by a state that we all in common agree with and to which you are simply passive. So like you... Obey the law and you'll be fine. You disobey the law and you'll be in trouble. Everyone is under that same experience. Like we're all under the same sovereign law and no one is looking to you to be a lawmaker, right? No one is asking you to decide. No one is asking you to exercise your human reason. You're not partaking or co-creating in any way. You're right. simply receiving which is why the, the state. Which is why there is a certain naturalness to the movement to self-driving vehicles because like all the entire history of automation, automation is always preceded by the automation of human activity, right? So it wasn't like we just invented some sweet automatic looms and we're like, sorry, weavers, you're out of here. It was rather that we first invented a factory system in which, you know, the division of labor Mm -hmm. made everything kind of uh, automatic. You turned (laughs) the person into a machine so that you You could then then automate the machine. machine. Exactly. And you're doing this, it's um, Uber. Totally. The the drive from Uber to AI driven cars yeah. is exactly the same. Like what I, but what I don't want to point out here is the way it actually has a satisfying effect because it realizes something we say about ourselves, which is that we are these individuals with rights and that things are ultimately decided by a central power that mm-hmm. ultimately flows from the highest power, which is the state. Yeah. And that this is human life, right? It's not true off the road, right? Like off the road, I mean, granted, you know, Andrew Jones describes liberalism as sort of always trying to make it more and more true by Mm -hmm, the structures mm -hmm. it puts in place. But still, I think we can see that, you know, generally speaking, you have to settle conflicts. Generally speaking, most, most crime prevention isn't actually through calling the cops. It's, it's through preliminary neighborly decisions and discussions and ways of speaking and, and enforcing of shame and honor for different actions. It is man as a lawmaker within his sphere of authority acting as a lawmaker. That's what keeps the peace. And this is always at war with the philosophy of liberalism. And so it's not until we get to the road that the world described becomes the world lived. Mm -hmm. And this I think is this great peace, especially for my friend here who's sort of, um, because of his condition, he is in a world in which uh, he's like the focus of of sort of liberal care. And so he has, you know, from therapy to the medical order, to the juridical order, like everything is sort of designed to give him a kind of navigatable life. But it doesn't really get realized, I think, until... Yeah, until I mean, it's, it's very... Um, this is such an overused... <laughs> 
cliche, but it's very 1984. Sure. The, the peace that comes with surrendering to the system. Yes. At the end of the book, he runs yeah. off and he's he's I think happy in a way because by surrendering right. to that system, you right. you are now at peace with it. Within the car, you experience the goods of like the goods of reality of community in an individualistic way. And I think something that yeah, um, it's all you get to mediate all. Th- of that's it. how it's mediated. And I think something we haven't brought up yet, but that's important important for Catholics is that really um, in America, once the with the mass adoption of the car with the building of the suburban parishes and Catholic communities, you then have a sort of abrogation of parish boundaries. You are no longer bound in a, um, you know, something that's... A shared community of faith that you yeah, centered choose. on a specific location that other people might live you, in that you might not agree even, with. Yeah, even yeah. your participation in the Christian life mm-hmm. becomes an individual choice because you now have the freedom, the freedom to be able to get in the car Yeah choose your parish you can then immediately leave church as quickly as possible without having to ever want never to interact to yeah. interact with the greeter right it's just jesus and you you know mm-hmm. you don't have to have the awkward you know walk and maybe somebody saying hey pal you want to come in for donuts it's like you you somehow you're faster than your car when it comes to you getting out of the church and getting into your car and going home right yeah yes american traditionalism everyone it's a beautiful thing yeah, and, but and it's also with with friendship. You drive, you know, you're you're able to so cultivate and um, or not cultivate, but uh, particularize your friendships that you can just drive to the people you want. You're not really concerned about getting to know your particular neighbor, except maybe if you have a, a shared interest or if you have dogs and you're going on vacation. You're like, hey man, you know, would you mind just walking them while I'm gone for the weekend? And that's the first time you've spoken to them in two years since you moved to the area. Mm-hmm. It's really a precursor to uh, the smartphone and social media in We're a lot of ways. save that one because I think there's no way I'm not going to talk about that a lot. So I think how much, how much more are we three. doing? We're doing, are we doing a part three? three. We just have to, guys. We're only, we're only so far through. But Goodness. it'll be the shortest part. Okay. okay. So let me just say this last thing to wrap up what has become quite organically and from the bottom up a discussion on the car as a certain realization of the anthropology of, of individualism and, and liberalism writ large. Um, private property. So one of the biggest claims, as it were, of the philosophy of liberalism is that everything is private property. There's property. It's either state owned, Mm -hmm. but private in the sense that only the state owns it and then uh, owned by individuals. So there's public and private. And I say property in the largest possible sense. So not just your house and the road, but also like the private sphere of life, which is, you know, increasingly a sort of personal decisions, morality, religion, and entertainment all belong here. And then the public sphere of life, which is like law and order, things like that. Not the show. But in the car, okay, and again, can I just say, obviously not true. So we can sort of put up all of these boundaries and say everything is private property, but our bodies themselves are not private at all. I mean, we are as affected by how people look at us and how they see us there's no suing people for their expectations, right? Like they want us to behave a certain way and we are such a creature that wants belonging. And so no matter how much we believe that we're just these private individuals that make our own choices, mm-hmm. obviously we only make the choices and have the desires we do on the basis of the desire for honor and the fear of shame, the desire for love and the fear of hatred. We are social creatures from the beginning. 
This is why it all begins with pregnancy, like an inability to distinguish person from person. Um, and this goes on into the kind of more quotidian description of private property, like who really owns the sidewalk? Well, it's the case oh. within most city law that the business owns the sidewalk, but there's ownership and there's ownership, man. Like you police behavior on the sidewalk. You're affected by behavior on the sidewalk. No one runs into the business and says, sir, there's someone on your sidewalk that has you know, mistreated me. It's considered over and against um, what the law says as a common space yeah. shared by people who are mutually involved using their reason to govern right. it according to the peace. And this is true of the park. This is true of uh, really everywhere. I mean, and mm -hmm. in the family, you already have the denial that this is true, where you say, uh, you know, private property, who owns it? The dad owns it. Okay, so who gets to decide what goes on in here? The dad. Mm -hmm. Who decides what goes on here? The children, right? <laughs> like, like, like actual private property yeah. is not private unless you conceive of the family as somehow this absurd, like, individual owner of house and yard. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, in actual fact, private property is the property of those who have the power to call upon its use. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, buddy, those are your kids, not you. And if you've ever experienced the truly just debased version of someone <laughs> who went through life really thinking that when he got that house and yard and car that it was his, and then has kids, you find the origin story of the man cave. So this... I'm sorry, we're a little far afield, but we're going to pull it back. This, <laughs> the, this is Plato's man cave. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get out of the man cave. <laughs> so the man cave is the resentful reaction to liberalism not actually being true in the family. Mm. It's to say, oh my gosh, I was promised it all and got none of it. And so you invent for yourself a sort of chauvinistic interior space in which you get to realize what property was supposed to mean, that it's just this extension of your individual person and everything was supposed to be contractual. And that means that four-year-old has got to leave me alone. And by the way, I've decorated terribly. Um, <laughs> so so the, you know what I'm saying? Like, so there's this like resentful attitude. This is the get off my lawn kid thing. This is the... Um, if you look at this house, I'll shoot you thing. I mean, this is a this is a feature of American life where if it was true that we all lived in private property, we probably wouldn't need to remind everyone with big signs about how many guns we have, right? Like mm -hmm. we would probably be able to say like, you know, how naturally things are private. Yeah. Okay, back to the car. Sorry, boys. Um, the car gives you private property. Like you get a new body. And this body, as you've mentioned, doesn't give itself to a public gaze. It actually creates oh, a individualized world in which the claims of private property seem true. You get to choose the temperature of your car. You get to choose what you listen to, what you hear, right? You get to choose within a kind of highly governed police state. You get to choose um, the direction you're going and everyone else has to obey your rights, right? You, when you have the right of way, like the police will punish others for not giving yeah. you your rights, which doesn't actually happen normally. <laughs> my rights are trampled on all the time. The right to free speech in my house, forget it, I don't have it. All right, so you see what I'm saying here. Like it, it, it makes the experience one of actually being the private property that otherwise you really aren't. And I think this explains a lot. Like it explains the rage the road rage of essentially everyone's driving this insured extension of their bodies. It also explains, I think, bumper stickers in a large way. Like there is a need when you're in the car 
for it to express your person because it's not just a car. It is the realization of the private body. Mm -hmm. And so you need to say, by the way, buddy, I vote Democrat or something. Were you, were right? you saying, there was um, a few weeks ago, there was, well, you're not on Facebook, but various like police stations across the nation were sharing this like image of um, basically like every bumper sticker you could imagine on a car. Like it's, and it's basically showing for like personal security. You know, what are you letting people know about you? Yeah. And it's like if you have a, you know, a military army Air Force sticker, it has a little call out saying, you know, my husband is away from the house frequently. Uh, or if you have like um, like an image of um, the little baby the little on stick children. Yeah. I know. OK, you've got so many you children. Have this many children. Oh, you've got a, a gun sticker predominantly displayed. Well, you know, guns are pretty valuable when you steal them. So <laughs> they probably have some. Or no, then it's like beach or like beach lover. You're frequently gone on summers. Yeah. And my, my house is easily raidable. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is. I think, yeah. I think we should probably start wrapping this up. Sure, sure. I, I don't want people to think that we're just complaining um, without any kind of solution. But though I will say, I mean, when it comes to the car in particular, it's so totalizing and so prevalent that it's an uphill battle. Yeah, like I, I think this, th this is, in a lot of ways, more. Difficult even than than divesting from the stock market, I would think, for most oh, people. Totally, yeah. Because yeah. you divest from the stock market, okay, you, you've you've taken your money out of a system that hates you. Fine. It's it it takes a lot of of courage to actually make that step. But in terms of your day to day life, you can live. You can still live. Yeah. Giving up your car is for a lot of people, frankly, not even possible. Yes. The the system is set up such that that you will suffer real and immediate consequences. And so the way we go about changing this has to be a societal effort. Mm -hmm. There are individual actions we can all take. And I don't want to go into too much detail because we'll be doing another episode about how, like what we actually do yeah. to make good cities. Yes, And that'll be a whole nother episode. And I'll talk about a lot of that then. Um, but I encourage people to really start engaging with how they use their car. Really think about it critically and really think about some of the options available to reduce that dependency. And those options can be maybe you get a smaller car. Maybe you have three cars and you only need two or maybe you have two cars and you only need one. Uh, maybe you can ride a bike. I know that it seems scary to people who have not done it before, and it can be scary depending on where you live, but consider it. Um, E-bikes fit into this kind of weird halfway point where it's like a lot of the same goods of the car and a lot of the same drawbacks of the car, but on a, on a reduced scale. So I don't think e-bikes are necessarily like a, a great long-term kind of thing like in the future in the perfect post-liberal future we'll all be riding e-bikes i don't think that's the case yeah. but in the world we live in now e-bikes are a great way to just one step back just even if you just use it to go to the park on the weekends instead of driving that's that's one less time yeah. that you have to engage with this system um so it, it really comes down to slowly making smaller and smaller choices and structuring your life in such a way that you can remove those dependencies. But recognizing the fact that two things, the fact that this will 
require probably considerable personal investment to really take this to, to its logical conclusion uh, be, because the homes in areas where this kind of lifestyle is available are often quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing you have to realize that by reducing our dependency on the car, we can't think that we're, by, by buying a used car, we're removing ourselves from the system of financialization that makes the new cars desirable and, and possible. The more we extract ourselves from the system of, of car ownership and car dependency, the more that system starts to break down mm-hmm. because it has been built in such a way that it requires self-perpetuation. Ford, GM, Tesla, they all need to keep making cars to keep making a profit. And so they're going to continue to try and sell us this, this promise of freedom. So even if our step is just as simple as buying a used car instead of a new car, we have to realize that the long-term consequence of that is going to be a lack of dependence on the car. Well, right. I mean, as we you, have to we have to distance ourselves. And um, as you reminded me, if everyone buys a used car, the whole system is destroyed. Eventually, eventually, it, yeah. it, there will be a bit of a lag, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it'll eventually collapse on itself. So we have to be. We we can't be emotionally attached to the car. Well, the gospel prepares for anything less. Exactly. Um, I want to put one. My final word on this episode um, is just a reminder of why there seems to be a, a fundamental hostility to the Catholic life that occurs through the automobile, and why why we would even oppose the automobile as a form of life. You know, having already said that, of course, it's pretty sweet as a technology. Um, and it's really not because of some kind of individual desire for purity. So you might you might notice, for instance, that we haven't spoken about pollution. Mm-hmm. We haven't sure. really, in a big way, spoken even about energy use. Yeah, and we're not particularly jazzed by the idea that somehow clean cars are going to save us and there's going to be like electric vehicles that somehow are built without fossil fuel, whatever. Why? Well, it's not just because we're not like dumb libs, but it's also because we really do think that the good that's being pursued here is a kind of social order. Mm -hmm. The reason to oppose the car is not the car. The reason to oppose it is a kind of world that is inimical to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. And so when we advise, as you have, a sort of step back to whatever degree possible, you got to understand it's not to make your individual life better, though it might in this way or that way, um, but because it is the only way to destroy a um, grave obstacle to the living out of a truly happy life and ultimately a, a Catholic life. That's all. Yeah. I have my, my closing words for this is when you were, when you were saying, um, you know, in terms of private property, who owns the sidewalk, um, who has to take care of it and the things that happen on it, I was immediately reminded of um, Jane Jacobs, Death and Life, Great American Cities. Jane Jacobs was a um, early 20th century advocate for good urbanism, particularly opposing the um, destruction of New York that was brought about by some of the work of Robert Moses. Get into another time. The but power broker? The power, the power broker, broker himself. Bro. But um, she lived in Greenwich Village and would speak 
um, wrote in the in the book Death and Life about um, you know the eyes on the street as she put it, where when you have this integration of life that you see within a traditional urban development, often within America, we see the businesses on the bottom, right? Very much Fourth Street. And you look around at your historic downtowns, you'll see that traditional urban fabric of businesses on the bottom and then apartments on the top. Oftentimes, this is where the owner of the business and their family would live. But, you know, if you have a, if you have a fight you see starting to break out on the street, or somebody suspiciously pursuing somebody else, you don't have to wait for the cops to show up to get that person, right? The moment you see that, you will also see other people. The the butcher is already getting out of their store with a big meat cleaver walking, <laughs> you know, walking towards them. Um, because there is a care for the community. There ultimately we are communal, right? We are not we are not the hyper individualistic people that liberalism tries to impose on our identity. And so the thing that I think should give us hope is that these, um, you know, the disinvestment from the car is also something that is going to make us more ourselves. And you have to be able to consider that within your own personal condition. But Mm -hmm. also that Mm -hmm. what we're speaking of is not just individual Christians or people making that divestment, but groups of people and suddenly seeing what new life emerges once you and your friends are making intentional efforts to walk, yeah. walk to church together, bike to church together. And you see new dynamics of friendship and new dynamics of holiness that are natural just start to come out. And that's where exciting things happen. Well, I'm really excited for the next podcast. I think we can um, probably go into more discussions about um, the, the kind of life that walkability implies and the kind of virtues that become accessible yeah. to us. Um, and if you're listening to this while driving, listen, <laughs> just be a good driver, be kind to people, open your windows and say hi. Get a convertible. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, everyone, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. As always, our best ideas are in the magazine. So please consider subscribing today and have a wonderful day.